We're in Genesis 19. I'm going to read, start in verse 4 of 19, and then I'm going to skip down to the end of of, uh, Genesis 19, and I'm going to read all the way through chapter 20. So it's a little bit of reading. If you have questions about this text, a lot of it I'm not even going to talk about. So uh, if you have questions, you can come come, um, ask me. But this is God's word because God is light. Genesis 19, verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you last night? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters. Who have not known any man, let them let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. And skipping down to uh, verse thirty in chapter nineteen, now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth. To come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The uh, The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben Ami, Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to, his, to said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return to the man's wife, for he is a prophet Sorry. He's a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return to her, know that you shall surely die, and uh, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see 
that you did this thing. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. So Sarah Uh, To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let's pray together. Our Lord... We thank you for the honesty of your word. We thank you that the Bible is true uh, true to uh, the brokenness of our world. And we know that that gives us hope, uh, that you are not just a savior to um, uh, the righteous, to people uh, who um, have no flaws in their life, but you are a savior um, both to sinners and to those who are wounded. And we thank you how consistently in your word we see you coming near to those who are hurting, uh, that you are a comforter, that you are a rescuer. We pray that you would stir hope in us as we talk about sexual abuse today. And uh, I pray for this church that you would use your word, you would use the truth of the gospel to make our church uh, a place of healing, um, a place of growth and a place of hope. So we ask this in Jesus' name. So, um, the, uh, as I said, the sermon is going to be a little different today. I'm going I'm to talk about sexual abuse, and then at the end, uh, uh, Melissa Englert is going to come up and uh, share with us some of her life story and what God has done in her life, um, uh, which is just a, a great encouragement to us um, as we both hear about the brokenness of the world and, um, and the hope that's in the gospel. And... Uh, a lot of what I'm going to be talking, what I'm going to be sharing with you comes from a book called uh, Wounded Heart by Dan Allender. Dan Allender is a psycho- Christian psychologist. He has a graduate school down in Seattle. It's where Trev, Trev's going to school. And uh, so a lot of these ideas, I'm going, to, I'm going to quote him a number of times throughout, uh, throughout the sermon. And a lot of these ideas come from him, so I'm not going to credit him every time uh, I say something that came from him. Almost everything does. He's much smarter than I am and has much more experience. Um, but I think that the, the issue of uh, sexual abuse is... Uh, a difficult topic because on the one on the one hand it's obviously very uh, hard thing for people to talk about who've been through it, who've experienced it. There's a tremendous amount of shame and hurt that goes with it, but it's also a hard thing to hear about. And uh, we feel uncomfortable as we hear about it and as we talk about it. And uh, many we unwittingly we often end conversations about sexual abuse or try to fix it or try to uh, make everything better quickly because we're uncomfortable talking about sexual abuse. And um, I'll, I'll tell you, it's, in the church, it's, it's not talked that much about because of that. Um, people are uncomfortable with it. And I think a lot of Christians don't think that sexual abuse is in the church. They think it's something that's happening out kind of in the dirty uh, pagan world out there. And it's not 
something that we're faced with right here in our community, but I'll tell you that's absolutely not true. I mean, it's probably a, a safe, it's probably conservative bet to say one in ten of the adults that are in this room have been sexually abused. It could be, it could be as much as a third. And um, I know that both from statistics and from just conversations that I've had with many of you. And, uh, and, and yet, many people who have been sexually abused, they've never told anyone. Um, it's, uh, it, it's something they feel a great deal of hurt and shame about and that they can't talk about. And yet, one of the things that, um, that's so important for us to talk about it is that what the Bible tells us is that each one of us is living in a story. What your life is, is God is writing a story, and stories always have uh, brokenness, they always have conflict, they always have tragedy, and, uh, and they're about a, you know, a rescuer coming and, and um, bringing hope and redemption. And what we do is when we uh, encourage one another to hide things that have happened in our lives and our past, uh, to push it away, to brush it away, to pretend that it didn't happen, what we're doing is we're cutting off a huge part of our story. And if we don't have that part of that story of where, where we've come from, we're actually cutting ourselves off from the hope of the gospel also. And so it's, it's so important for us to be able to speak and say, this is the story that God is writing with my life. And that's really where healing begins. And I'll tell you what's so amazing about this passage that I just read is that this is the sacred, God's sacred holy word, the Bible, and um, these are Christian families we're reading about. We know from Second Peter that Lot was a Christian. Uh, we know that Abraham's a Christian. And, uh, and what we have here is uh, Lot decides to go live in a city where um, all the men in the city, it is their practice when someone is visiting the city and doesn't have a place to live, they go out and they bring their young boys to go and, and gang rape visitors. And they've been training their children in a certain kind of sexuality and uh, probably molested their children regularly. That's, these children are growing up in a city. And Lot says, I'm going to go bring my family to go live in that kind of culture because I want to make money there. And so when it comes time that Lot receives, the story we just read, Lot receives a couple visitors that are visiting the town. And the whole town, young and old, it says, surrounds the house. And they want the visitors so that they can have their way with the visitors. And Lot says to them, why don't you take my two virgin daughters? And I just want you to picture being those daughters, uh, the, already the horror of having your house surrounded, and then to have your father, who's supposed to be protecting you, pr- protecting your purity, caring for you, doesn't say, why don't you take me? You know, why don't you take, do whatever you want to me, just save my daughters. He talks about using his, his house to shelter these visitors that he just met. And he says, why don't you take my daughters? What is he saying to them? What is he saying that a, a woman is for, what his wa- daughters are for? This is a Christian man who just did that. And we see the, da- uh, the damage of that in these daughters' life. In the end of the story, they, uh, they have this act where they get their father drunk, and they go into his tent, and, and two nights in a row, they, um, they sleep with their father. And we also see this with Abraham. Abraham goes into towns, and he's done this before, where he doesn't protect his wife. He says, just say you're my sister. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want anyone to kill me. He's a coward and doesn't protect his wife. And so twice his wife has been taken by kings into their harem to be one of their wives. And he doesn't protect them. He doesn't do that. And again, someone in power is now using their power 
to uh, just take women uh, as sexual objects. This is in God's word. This is in God's story of the redemption of the world. God did not hush this up. God did not silence these stories. He told them plainly in his word. There's a tremendous amount of hope in it that he says it. He doesn't leave this out. And if God doesn't leave these stories out in his telling of the Bible, we cannot leave those stories out as we tell our stories to one another. And I'll tell you that, you know, it is, uh, you know, I'll be honest with you, there's a risk for me to talk about this. I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm not a psychologist. Um, uh, and, you know, I'm, I, as a pastor, I have two options. I either talk about it or don't. <laughs> and I can talk about it. Uh, I can not talk about it or I can talk about it imperfectly. And, you know, I, I, I want you to know that um, I'm going to go into some psychology and I might get too heady for you. And you might, why are you, why are you com- making this so complex? But really my heart behind this is that I've, I've talked to, to a number of you who've been sexually abused. And I love you. And I know some of you have been sexually abused and you've never told anyone. And I, I'm just here because I want you to know that I love you. I do. I love you, and um, I want our church to be uh, a place where people come and they they find healing and they can taste the grace of God. And so, um, so I I hope this is a blessing to you, and I hope this um, the Lord uses this. Um, I'm just I'm basically just going to tell you three things in the sermon. First, um, what sexual abuse is. Second, the effects of sexual abuse. That's where I'm going to spend most of my time. And lastly, um, uh, the hope that there is for the abused. And of course, like everything, it turns out the hope is the gospel. And it turns out that we as Christians, you have no idea how many, what resources we have in Jesus to deal with um, unimaginable brokenness. So um, we're going to answer those three things. What is sexual abuse? What are the effects? And what is the hope? So first, what is... Sexual abuse, um, and I'm you know I'm using Allender's book, uh, which largely talks about um, adult victims of childhood sexual abuse. So a lot of it's going to come. I know sexual abuse has many other um, uh, forms, but um, and, and this is his, this is the definition that he gives. A sexual abuse is any contact or interaction, any contact, any physical contact or interaction that could be visual, verbal, or psychological between a child or adolescent and an adult when the child or adolescent is being used for the sexual stimulation of the perpetrator or any other person. Okay, so a child is being used um, for sexual stimulation. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail about this definition, um, but it it covers um, all kinds of different experiences. You know, there are some kinds of sexual abuse that's very blatant. You know, uh, this uh, Penn State uh, scandal that's just come out, much of that, you hear about what happened, you're like, that was sexual abuse, obviously. But there's also things um, that there's kinds of sexual abuse that doesn't even involve physical contact, that is, can be equally as damaging as physical contact. Um, you know, Allender gives one example of a gal who came into his office. She was a very successful, very confident kind of woman, and she wanted to. She was saying, "You know, I'm not really sure if if I've been abused." And she began to tell him the story about how for 14 years her parents would bring her to a, a nudist colony, and um, they would participate in nudist colony, and they had uh, pageants where she had to come out before clothed men and and display herself 
um, in front of, and this was for 14 years of her, bring, of her upbringing. And there was no physical contact happening in that. And she was like, so, you know, I'm not really sure if I was abused. And Alan was saying, you're not sure if you were abused. Like, uh, that is the amount of shame and, and hurt and uh, abuse of trust that's going on there. Uh, that absolutely is. And so this definition includes all kinds um, of experiences. And uh, in this passage that we've read about, um, we have uh, the men in Sodom who were training their young boys in, in sexuality in one way. And then we also have Lot who's not protecting his uh, daughters. And what you have in both these instances is that these are people who are very close to those who are being abused, who are abusing them. Close relationships. These are fathers and uh, you know uncles. And actually, statistics say that um, for children who are abused, 93% of the time it is by someone that they know. It's, only very, it's rare that it's by someone that they don't know. And it's often in the context of trusting relationships. So, uh, you know, that's the coach or a mentor or a counselor or, um, or an uncle or a, f- a family. Someone where this person is going to and, and they've built trust with them. And it's in the context of a trusting relationship that a person has used the, the access of that trusting relationship to abuse someone. And, um, um, and you know, I, I think that my experience of most people that I've talked to who've been sexually abused, that's, that's been their experience. Um, so I, I think that that's very common. And uh, in particular, in the failure of a father uh, to be protecting his children, either as the perpetrator or um, in some other way allowing something like this to happen. And um, a part of the tragedy is that fathers are meant to be a picture to their children of who God is. Fathers are a picture of this is, who, this is what God is like. And uh, Allender puts it this way. A father is called to be a secure, trustworthy, and life-generating gener- surrogate for God until the child develops the capacity to see his or her heavenly father as the only perfectly trustworthy source of life. The victim's struggle to trust will be proportionately related to the extent her parents failed to protect and nurture her as a child. And so sexual abuse, in many cases, is not just in a, uh, someone in power, an adult, using someone weaker or a child for their sexual stimulation, but also using the relationship, using the trust, using the intimacy that's there. And that is really what, in many ways, can cause some of the deepest damage is because it's within the context of trust, the trust that's being betrayed and trust that's being broken. So that leads to my second point about um, what are the effects of sexual abuse. Now, I'm going to um, talk a little bit about the psychology um, of, uh, of sexual abuse. And one of the main concepts that I think that's, uh, this is something that Allender uses that I think is very helpful is the idea of ambivalence. Now, follow me. Stay with me for a little bit, okay? Um, the ambivalence is uh, the ex- uh, feeling two seemingly opposite emotions about the same experience. Ambivalence is feeling two opposite emotions about the same experience. And uh, let me explain what I mean by that. The Bible tells us that sex is a blessing. It's uh, something that God has made us for. It's a good thing. Um, God has made our bodies, our nerves, and um, 
and pleasure, all of these things are meant to be places where God shows us that he is good and that he loves us. So that when we experience pleasure, we, we know that God can be trusted and there's a God who's for us and we can hope in him and we depend on him. So pleasure is a good thing. Uh, sex is a good thing. And, uh, you know, also emotional intimacy is, a, is a, an important part of what it means to be human. You know, one, as Christians, one of the distinctives that we believe in as Christians is that God is a trinity, three in one. That before God made the world, there was the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and they had total transparent lives of trusting each other and uh, loving each other, and that if the, the most essential thing about God is relationship and intimacy. And so as humans made in the image of God, one of the most basic parts of our dignity as humans is that we want to be close to people. We want to be intimate with people. That's a part of our dignity. And so um, uh, what happens, uh, the tragedy of sexual abuse is that, um, is that a perpetrator or an abuser uses these parts of our dignity um, to cause betrayal and shame. They take things that are good about us, that we want to move, you know, so in these trusting relationships, we often wanted to move close to people. We wanted to have these relationships. And, uh, and yet, you know, so these 93% of abuse, ch- childhood abuse victims, 93%, they probably wanted these relationships. They wanted to be close to people. They didn't want it to turn into a sexual relationship, but they wanted to be close to someone. They wanted to be loved. And so there's a great confusion because there's something that we feel good about that is a part of our dignity becomes the context for betrayal and shame. And let me, let me give you, a, that's what ambivalence is. Feeling the dignity and the shame combined together at the same time. Let me, so let me give you a, a little illustration. Um, I, I've experienced a bit of this in my own life. Um, I've shared with you before that as a teenager, I, I, you know, I was a bad kid. I dropped out of school and you know, my parents... They didn't know what to do with me, so I, I got picked up in the middle of the night, and I was sent away for a year and a half to a boys' program on the island of Western Samoa. And it was kind of a rehab um, uh, boot camp kind of place, and, um, and which was a very positive experience. That's where I became a Christian. But um, one of the things that in this program they do is they want to, you know, a lot of, a lot of the kids have, have not been loved growing up. They... Um, uh, they've had broken families, and so they create this culture of a real brotherhood among all the boys. You know, you hug each other, and you say, I love you, and, and uh, there's a real, you're vulnerable with each other, and uh, there's a real closeness, and for many of them, they've never experienced anything like that. And so it's very, it's very positive, and yet there are a lot of kids there who've been sexually abused, they've, uh, or they have broken homes, and they're all 16, they're hormonal, and, you know, we're, we're uh, sleeping in these huts, we'd sleep in these huts on the floor, just all kind of stacked on top of each other, and so, you know, a lot of times, we, we'd be watching movies, and people would be giving each other massages, or people might hold hands, or people might cuddle with each other, and, you, you know, you might sound, this, this sounds very strange, but for there, it, it was very confusing, because on the one hand, we're just being brothers, you know? And there were a number of times where this, you know, turned into uh, sexual encounters there, and um, that, that didn't happen to me, uh, thank God. Uh, but the um, one thing that, uh, that did happen to me, I, I had a good friend there who, um, you know, I, I felt kind of confused about I mean, he was a very close friend. I, I, I loved talking with him. 
And, um, and I, I don't know if he was gay or not. I don't know if he looked at me that way. It was, I, I wasn't sure, but he was a friend. And at one point, um, he, uh, one day, we were walking down the beach together, or, you know, down a trail together, and uh, there were a bunch of people around, and he kissed me on the cheek. And, you know, that might sound kind of harmless. You know, I've given Trev a man peck probably on the cheek, like, yeah, all right, hey, bro, you know. But it wasn't like that. It was... Uh, it, you know, it was wet. It was. Uh, it, it meant it was saying something more. And you know, this is a, a relationship that I I wanted to be friends with this guy. I, you know, I liked being friends with him. Um, and also, my your body is meant to respond to a kiss like that with pleasure and sensations. And I felt that. But I, I'm not gay. I I I really am confident that I'm, that I'm not gay. And. Um, <laughs> Okay, so there you go. Uh, but, you know, this was, uh, you know, it's, it's, Shannon's probably amazed that I'm telling you this because this was one of the hardest things for me to tell her in our whole relationship that I was, that this happened to me and I lived in this context. And you, what you can see is that sense of ambivalence because I felt a deep sense of shame about that. On the one hand, it's something that I felt good about. I wanted the relationship. It's something I wanted. And at the same time, it's something I didn't want. It's probably one of the things I feel most ashamed about in my life. And this, is, this isn't even sexual abuse. I mean, this is just a kiss on the cheek. And you can see the amount, uh, uh, the influence that it had on me. And you just magnify the importance of that relationship. And you magnify the amount of contact or the abuse that's in there. And you can see how confusing ambivalence is. And, um, and I'll tell you what ambivalence does. Is, is When someone's been abused, they begin to say to themselves... It is because of my bodily desires and it is because of my desire for intimacy that has caused me to be wounded. It led me into the trap. It's because I wanted intimacy that I got wounded. Do you hear what that's saying? My dignity as an image bearer of God is what has caused me to be wounded. And what happens is instead of our dignity being something that's celebrated, our desire to be close to people being something that's celebrated in us, it's now something that we hate and we distrust in ourselves. I wish I didn't want to be close to people. I wish my body didn't uh, have those kinds of sensations. And the result of ambivalence, a couple things, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Two of the things that ambivalence causes is on one hand it causes us to punish our bodies and it causes us to deaden our longing for intimacy. Okay, first, it causes us to punish our bodies. And uh, let, me, let me tell you what that means. Um, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's common for if someone has been abused um, that they've learned to separate their soul and their body from each other. And to see their body, that's that thing, that dirty thing that got me into the, the shame and pain that I'm experiencing. And so, um, and you know, interestingly, as Christians, separating the body and soul is, is, is how we understand death. I mean, that's what death is. Because, uh, you know, as Christians, our salvation is not that our soul is going to go to heaven. That's not salvation. Salvation is the resurrection of our bodies and the making whole of our body and our bringing together of our souls and bodies. And, uh, and so that separation... On the one hand, um, you know, it can result in kind of a disinterest in sex or a disgust at sex. Sex is a part of our dignity and a disgust at it. Or it causes us to begin to take revenge on our bodies. And so that can look like eating disorders or, uh, or substance abuse or even sexual addictions are ways that we are punishing our body and taking revenge on it for getting me into the pain that I was experiencing. 
So you might not have even bridged those two things together, that eating disorder and sexual abuse, how do those things go together? There it is. It is because of the body. It's because of ambivalence. And so on the one hand, um, uh, sexual abuse causes us to punish our bodies. Um, and our bodies are part of the image of God in us. Um, but also sexual abuse results in deadening our longing for intimacy. Now, whether you've been abused or not, you know, abused or not, I think this, is, this was something that was helpful for me just reading in this book, I think for anyone, is uh, that we begin to distrust that longing um, to be close to people. And so um, we begin to show contempt for other people and to keep our distance because we don't want to let people in. Because when we wanted to be close to people, that's what caused us uh, to be abused is when we, when we had those desires that we wanted to be close to that mentor, we wanted to be close to that parent, we were longing for intimacy, we say, that longing is what led me into it. And so we try to destroy that longing in us and push it away. I'm not even going to long to be close to people anymore. And this is really interesting. Now, this is an important statement right here. What that means is that the worst damage about abuse is, is actually not the pain of it. The pain is, is hor- horrific, but the worst thing, the worst damage is that we've lost the freedom to love people. We've lost the freedom to move close to people. And that that's what it means to be human. To be human is to be like God, where we're transparent and our hearts are open and we move co- close to people. And uh, we've lost the ability to do that because we hate that part of ourselves, And we're trying to deaden that part of ourselves. And so what that means is to grow, to change, is not to get rid of the pain. We're not going to totally be rid of the pain uh, until Jesus restores us and we're in God's presence and we're healed totally. We're going to have a whole life. But we can have what Francis Schaeffer calls substantial healing. And we can begin to learn to move closer to people again and to learn to trust and to open our hearts again and to love again. And that's what healing begins to look like, is to begin to love people. And so that, that leads to our third point, is what is the hope for those who've been abused? And I'll just tell you, I really, I really think the gospel has tremendous resources for healing. And uh, let me just uh, give you one last quote from Allender. This is on, actually on page three of your bulletin, I believe. Um, this is what he says. A problem cannot be substantially resolved until it is honestly faced. The most common error in some Christian groups is to ignore the problem or offer true solutions in a trite way. I'm going to talk more about that in a second. Uh, But people struggling to face their problems honestly make an equally destructive error if they spurn spiritual solutions because they appear simple and irrelevant to the complexity of the problem at hand. So, you know, we feel that way about about, uh, sexual abuse, that it's complex and it's so deep and it's way down into us. And, you know, you're just going to talk about Jesus dying on the cross for your sins and you think that's going to heal everything. There are trite ways to deal with people. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But we we can't leave the gospel. The gospel is the place where God is healing all things in the world. And so I just want to tell you four pieces of hope that God gives us um, to those who have experienced sexual abuse. So the first is this, is that um, God wants us to tell our stories. And again, I want to come back to the fact that these stories are in the Bible um, is a tremendous amount of hope, that God includes that in his story of redemption about um, Christian families who are dealing with horrific sexual abuse. God includes that in the Bible. 
And what that tells us is that sexual abuse is not a death sentence. Sexual abuse does not say your life is over, you're ruined forever. It doesn't. Because here are people who are in God's story of redemption, and they're a part of it, and God's still working there. God's present. And so it invites us to tell our stories and believe that that can actually be part of a story of God's redemption. So the first hope is that the, the gospel tells us to, tell, to say that we can say it. We can say it to one another. Secondly, God has given us the church. Now, listen, I know a lot of people in our culture say things like, you know, I'm a spiritual person. I believe in, uh, I believe in God, but I don't believe in organized religion. And organized religion is what you do when people come together to worship God together. That's organized religion. I don't think they know what they're saying. You really think that God is going to uh, do his great act, the loving God, uh, the creator of the universe is going to do his loving act, and he's not going to create a family in the process? Of course he is. You think that if God comes and works in your life and you're becoming a spiritual person, that's going to mean you isolating yourself from other people? Or is it going to make you into a family? And what God does is part of our salvation is that he doesn't just uh, uh, save us as individuals. He saves us into a family. And if what healing looks like is learning to love people, to move close to people, to, to open our hearts and trust God again. Look what God's given us. He's given us a place, a, a community of grace to begin to do that. And you know, I'll tell you, count, Christian counselors, more and more as they're working with people, they're starting to say, you know what you really need? You need a church. <laughs> you need people that see you throughout the week, and they love you, and they listen to your story, and they still love you, and they still want to be a friend. And, uh, and actually, you can trust them, that there are people that can be trusted. Not everyone is, is a threat. And that God, that God does want you to be loved. And what that means for us, this is important for us as a church, as um, you know, some of you may either begin to share about sexual abuse that you've experienced, or, or you may be hearing from someone. Someone might share with you about sexual abuse. What do we do with that? How do we handle that? Um, let me just give you a few guidelines. Um, Trevor shared with me a story this week uh, about a, a kind of a small discussion group he was in, and, uh, and a, a gal had was sharing that she had been abused and, and she was in tears. She was um, really opening her heart to this group. And um, immediately people began to kind of jump on it and give different solutions. And uh, the first guy said, we gotta, this is demonic. We need to pray for you. We, this, there's uh, spiritual warfare happening here. We need to start slaying demons with some prayers. And, you know, she's just opened her heart. And all of a sudden, I mean, what's he saying? I mean, listen, prayer is essential for dealing with these things. It probably is the evil one working. But what you're saying, on the one hand, is um, I need to fix a problem now. And secondly, uh, you're demon-possessed. So you're, you're, if, if, this, if you're trying to embrace this person and make them feel like you're my sister, I love you, I'm not going anywhere, saying uh, you're demon-possessed, I mean, does that open people up? You know, it's not, and then the next girl, she's like, I think we need to dance. I guess there's something called dance therapy. And she's like, we got to hit this with dance therapy. And the, this gal's in tears. And, she, and then the next gal's like, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think that nothing that anyone does can, we can really call evil. And this was absolutely evil that was done to her. And everyone is, is uncomfortable with just sitting and listening and loving and holding this person and saying, I love you. I can't fix you. I'm not the savior. You're not the savior. That's good news. 
But, but if, if what healing looks like is people beginning to trust again, the best thing you can do is just stay right there and love them and listen. And what you're saying to them is you can trust people. And I'm not going anywhere, and I love you. And that's terribly powerful. That was, you're not going to know the words if someone shares with you abuse. You, you won't know the words. You can't fix it. And stay there. Love them. Okay? So the second hope is the church. This is a brilliant thing that we're doing right here that God created. Two more things about Jesus. First is that Jesus will make us whole again. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus is going to come back, and first of all, he is going to judge the wicked. And those who are sexual abusers will stand before Jesus, and they will be terrified, and they will have to give an account for everything that they did. There will be justice. That is hope. But even bigger than that is that the Bible uses this great language of that God is going to wipe away every tear. And that's the Bible's way of saying he's going to make us whole again. And there's going to come a time where our bodies are going to be raised. We're not going to be ashamed of our bodies anymore. Our bodies and souls will be brought together. And God's going to do for us what he did for Jesus when he raised his body from the dead. And we're going to have open hearts. We're going to be transparent with people. We're going to let people in. We're going to sing God's praises and trust him. And there's going to be no more fear. And we're going to be whole again. That day is coming. That is hope. This is not the end of the story. Sexual abuse is not a death sentence. And in Jesus, there is complete restoration. And, that is, and, and what we're doing in the church right here is, is an anticipation of that. We're beginning to do that new world right now. You know how Paul says, you are a new creation in Christ? You are a new creation. You are part of that new world stuck in the old world right now. And so uh, the hope is that Jesus will make us whole. But the last hope is that Jesus is an abused God. You know... One of the biggest questions about abuse is where, where was God? Why did he let it happen? And, you know, I, I, as a pastor, I don't have an answer for you. I don't know that. But I will tell you that the God that we worship is a God who has himself been abused. Jesus was stripped naked. You know, we see pictures of Jesus on the cross. He's got a loincloth on. There was no loincloth. He was naked. He was stripped naked by uh, wicked men and abused by them. And the God that we come to worship, you know how it is when you know someone who's been abused and how much they can minister to you and they can talk to you and they can understand you? Can you imagine the creator of the universe is an abused creator? He's like us. And he says, come to me and I'll mend your wounds. And that's what Jesus is doing in the gospels. He's bringing people and he's mending wounds and he's making, teaching them to love again. And that's one of the things that God is doing in this church. By his spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that the gospel is real and it is good news. Teach us to love and to trust and um, to entrust our hearts to you, to open our hearts to you. And I pray that you would make this church a place of healing, a place of joy. And where the dignity of being human and image bearers that, um, that you've given us bodies, that you um, you've want us to long for intimacy, that we would celebrate that again. And um, Lord, we just look forward to the day when you'll come and make us whole. And we will really love like Jesus loves. May that day come soon. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.